Well, we are in Psalm 119 again this morning. Uh, thank you to Matt Kersey for uh, bringing the word last time. I was texting him, and it was just encouraging to hear just how the Lord blessed that time uh, as he went through Psalm 22. Uh, I wish I could have been here to listen to it. I was excited when I was talking to him about filling in for me and just his thoughts on the passage, and it's a bummer that I wasn't able to be here and listen. <laughs> but I am glad to be back with you. Uh, we're going to continue. Uh, in our series through Psalm 119, we are in uh, the stanza that begins with verse number 89. This is stanza number 12, so we're just over the halfway point through this long chapter. And we are persisting in what we've been calling this sort of beautifully monotonous study of this psalm, which just continues to uh, press upon our hearts just the uh, present and precious power of the Word of God. And this is, you can really see, uh, I'm sure you have seen already, but you can really see through this psalm how David is coming back to the same sorts of prayers. He's coming back to the same sorts of thoughts. The things that speak to him most are the things that he keeps repeating often. The fact that the Lord is the one who quickens, and he quickens according unto his word. Uh, we've seen that phrase uh, pop up several times already as we um, have gone through this study that he was made alive because of what the word says to him and says about him and says about his Lord and his Savior. And I think that's what's most encouraging to me um, is the fact that through this psalm, I think you can really see that David was just like us. That David was a spiritual man, yes, and he was a man who is now mentioned forever in the word of God. But he wasn't uh, unaccustomed to all of the thoughts and feelings that we have. He keeps coming back to the same prayers. He keeps needing the same encouragement day after day, year after year. That he needs to know that his God is faithful. He has constant doubts. His heart was fickle. It was frail. It, was, uh, it wavered with the seasons, with the stresses, with the things that came into his life. His faith was often weak. And that's why he comes here in this stanza especially, and he, and, uh, he prays, and I think he's made again to see, as we've already seen, that regardless of what happens in his life, regardless of all the things that surround him, God's word was steadfast and sure for him. That there's so many things that come and go. But I think really this stanza uh, conveys to us just the steadfastness of the word. Look at what he says. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances. For all are thy servants. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should, have, I should then have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. I am thine. Save me, for I have sought thy precepts. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. I think here, the, the word that was just popping up to me, and it's not even mentioned in here, is this idea of steadfastness. 
This idea of being steady, of being firm, of being sure, of having uh, inflexibility. And I think that's really what he's talking about here. As he's talking about the word, talking about the testimonies of God. As he says, they are settled in heaven. They are fixed. They are inflexible. Therefore, they are reliable. They cannot be changed because they are settled in heaven, as he says, forever. And this is the opposite of David's own nature. It's the opposite of mankind's own heart. We are defined by change. We are constantly changing. Our hearts, as we've already said, are fickle. They move with the seasons. We are made to rejoice at times, and other times we are made to mourn. And there are times in which we feel both, and our lives are in flux, we might say. And as James the Apostle writes in his, in his letter, he says that uh, our lives are like a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. We are constantly moving and changing. We are uh, changing uh, constantly with our circumstances. Because we are not steady. God's word is, but we are not. Our passions, they change. Our faith, it often wavers. And I think David is making us to see that that is what it means to be human. But what it also means to be a redeemed son and daughter of God is the fact that while we may not be sure, God's word is sure. While we we may not be unchangeable, God's word is unchangeable. And here, he, I think he gives us three, he communicates three things that do not change. And I think these things really define the Christian life. Because of the fact that they are unchangeable, they are steady, they are steadfast. Look at verse 89 again, because I think here we have, first of all, our unchanging foundation. Look at what he says. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. But then look at verse 96, the end of the stanza. He says, I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. So here, I think he's making a really interesting statement. A statement about life in which he is saying he's seen an end of all perfection. And really, it sounds very much like something that his son would say in Ecclesiastes, right? How Solomon there in that book He is going through all of these avenues and pushing them to their very limits to find something, yes, that he can rely on. Something that is steady. Something that isn't affected by the changing of the times. And here David is saying that he has seen an end of all perfection. And what that means is he too has seen an end to all of what the world calls perfect. He's seen its end, meaning that the perfection that the world offers us is not really perfect. It isn't flawless. It has a limit. It has a ceiling. It has uh, boundaries. The perfection that the world offers isn't always perfect. I love, you know, like the Lysol commercials. They offer this idea that it cleans 99.99% of germs. But that's still not perfect. There's still a couple of germs left. It's really good, but it's not quite perfect. That's really what the world can offer us. Yes, perhaps there's some things that can satisfy, and perhaps in a a single moment we are 99.99% satisfied, but then that satisfaction goes away. We see this with our kids. Christmas morning, the first gift is awesome. 
But then as soon as they open it and they see it, they enjoy it for perhaps five seconds. And then what's next? Where's my next present? (laughs) The satisfaction doesn't stay. It doesn't remain. It's not a steady satisfaction. It goes because there's always something that is perhaps more perfect. Perhaps a little bit better to satisfy their souls. And I think David is here saying, I've seen an end to that. The perfection the world offers, it has limits. It has ends. And this is different, David says, than God's perfection. He says, thy commandment is exceeding broad. It's wide. It's vast. It's spacious. It, is, it has no perceptible limits. You can't see the ends of this commandment that God offers. The perfection that God has in himself, that he offers in his son Christ, has no achievable ends. No boundaries to it. It is a, a perfect perfection. That is so far beyond, it's exceeding broad. It's, it's so far beyond what man can uh, bring to himself, can find for himself. It's exceeding broad. And such, I think, is what David is striving and learning to build his faith on. Not on the perfections which have an end, but on the perfections which don't have an end. On the perfection of God, which is exceeding broad. It has no perceptible ends to it. This is what he's finding for himself. That his foundation, his unchanging foundation, is the steadfast word of God. This is his resource in life. This is his resort in life. His recourse in life as he goes back to it and always finds it the same. It always says the same thing about us and the same thing about God. It always says the fact that we are insufficient, and yet God is all-sufficient. No matter when you come back to it in life, it will always say that very same message. That you are faithless, but yet God is faithful. You are a sinner, but God is righteous, and he has given you that righteousness. It will always say that same message. It is a steadfast word. It's a steadfast, sure word that God has delivered and spoken to us. And how different this is. And how glorious this is. As he says there at the very beginning. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And he says, else, uh, continuing on uh, in verse 90. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Generations past have seen this truth. Generations present have have seen this truth. Generations future will see this same truth. That God is faithful when in the days of Abraham, in the days of David, in our day, in our grandchildren's day. It will be this same God who was forever faithful. Why? Because his word has declared it and his word is settled in heaven. It is based not in anything transient, but is based in God's own eternity. God's own realm, he, he says it's settled in heaven. It's based in his person and character. The word of God is secured in God's own eternality. God is eternal. God is immutable. He cannot change. He does not change. He does not change his mind about you. He isn't moved by the whims and fancies of the circumstances of the culture like we are. He isn't tossed about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, as the Apostle Peter writes. 
He's excluded from any semblance of change. That's what that word immutable means. And such is what he secures his word in. He says it's settled in heaven. It's not settled in what man says. It's settled in what God says. As the Apostle James elsewhere writes in that same letter where he talks about there with with God, the, the God of lights, the Father of lights, he says, there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Meaning he can't change. Whereas the writer of Hebrews, he says the same thing, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't fluctuate. He doesn't waver. He is not defined by flux. He is defined by steady faithfulness. Faithfulness unto all generations, as David here writes. The same is true of this word to us. He says it's settled in heaven. It's fixed in God's domain, out of man's reach. Man can try and change this word. He can perhaps change some of the letters. He can change uh, some of the meaning sometimes. But it never changes what God has already declared about himself. He's declared himself a perfect savior, a perfect faithful redeemer for you and I. And then therefore we can be so made to rest. We can be so steady and stilled by that fact. That he's secured his word in his realm in heaven. We might even say he secured his word outside of time. God is not bound by the limits of hours and minutes and days and years That's why he can be the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and the God of the Pharisees who were asking that question. They said, who's God? He says, I am. And they were confronted by that fact. I think it's in John 8 where they are asking him uh, who he is. And he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they got offended. They said he was committing blasphemy. Why? Because he was taking the place of the Messiah and they were probably also a little bit confounded by this idea that, oh, wow, you're, you are Yahweh now? You are the I am? And he's saying, yeah, I am. <laughs> that is who I am. <laughs> I'm, I was the God of them then. In that moment, I am your God now, and he is our God here now. He's still the I am. He's not bound by time. And that's why he can say why the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says that before the foundation of the world... We were chosen in him to be the redeemed sons and daughters of this Savior. Before the world even existed, there was a Savior that also existed. This is the incredible power of God. That he is not bound by the limits and constraints of our ideas of history in a linear timeline. He is so powerful and so beyond our comprehension that before the world was even thought up, a savior had already, was already there to provide for our ruin. Charles Bridges, the great commentator that we've been referencing on this chapter, he writes that very thing. He says, before this fair creation was marred, Before it was called into existence, its ruin was foreseen and a remedy already provided. Why? Because God is already there. We already know the ends. 
We know what is going to happen, perhaps not how it's going to happen, but we know at the last day Jesus is going to be crowned king, and we know it because he has already told it to us, he has already assured us of it, and we know for, for a fact that Jesus will be seen as that prince and king and ruler of our realm, and there's nothing that man can do to alter that. There's nothing that we can do to change this word. Why? Because it's established, it's settled, it's fixed in heaven. We can't change it. We can't move it. What God says about you cannot be altered. God doesn't get frustrated with his investment in us. He is not frustrated by the fact that he sacrificed his son to save us. And there will be some in this world that spit on that sacrifice and go to hell in their unbelief. And he is not frustrated by that. He is glorified by both because his justice will be glorified. And in fact, everything that he says will, become to, will come to a day when we will see his majesty. And this is the glory of this word. It is fixed in heaven. He is faithful, as he says, unto all generations. But I love the fact that David continues on this idea of this unchanging foundation, this idea where he says, Thou hast established the earth. He says, And it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. They there, meaning not just the earth, but all of the things in space and time. In creation, he's referencing earth as creation here. In this nature, it abides, it continues, it remains, it endures, it stands only in its course because he says it should. He says, thou hast established the earth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances. They continue. Nature in all of its courses and seasons, it moves on only because thou hast ordained it to. Because thou hast caused it to. Nature itself is a sermon to us. It moves in, in God's course. It moves according to what God says. And he says, all are thy servants. And servants there doesn't just mean someone who serves. It actually implies the idea of a worshiper. All of nature then is made to worship its creator. Why? Because it moves in constant motion according to what God says. According to what God has ordained it to do. This is God's faithfulness to us. It is as abiding as creation itself. And his word is as eternal as God himself. That's why you can always come back to this unchanging foundation in the word of God. Because it never moves. It never is altered. It moves according to what God says. And what God says will always be there. This is our foundation in life. I am confident in my salvation. Not because of anything in me. But because I know that God has declared it in his word. That by grace you shall be saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is our foundation. It's established in what God says to us, says about us. I think even so, even still, we can make our hearts to uh, find that rest. 
Find that, that sense of security and, and that sense of stillness when we are made to see this unchanging word. Again, we can come back to it and it will always say the same things. It doesn't change. It doesn't have any uh, sort of appendices or amendments. There's no amendment to what God's word has said. It is here and it is final. And this is what the word has declared to us. It's the word of our pardon. And our pardon is steadfast. It's the word of our redemption. And that redemption is steadfast because God has declared it to us. That is our unchanging foundation. But look at verse 94. The second thing I think we see here is our unfading identity. Our unfading identity. Look what he says. I am thine. Save me, for I have sought thy precepts. I think he here, David, or here articulates, I think one of the more precious, I think marvelous prayers in the whole Bible. And it's a three simple word prayer. I am thine. I am thine. This was David's identity. That he was God's. That he was a a possession of this God of all creation. That notwithstanding who the world claimed or tried to accuse him of being. Notwithstanding what his guilt made him think that he was. He was God's. You think he was the one who knew how grievous he, he had acted against his God. And yet here he can even say, I am thine. I am yours. God, you have possessed me. I am your possession. I am one of your chosen ones. This God of all generations calls David his own. He calls him precious. It's like what uh, David asserts in Psalm, look at Psalm 105. Psalm 105 verse 15, he writes something very familiar and similar. 105 verse 15, he says that the Lord says, saying, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. Touch them not. They cannot touch them. It reminds me of what we find in Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8. Where it talks about how that God has declared us. Declared his people. His own people to be the apple of his eye. And that you cannot touch it unless you touch him. Go through him. This is our identity too. This is God's stamp on us. And to me it's one of the most sort of mind-boggling identities, I think, that we can come to grips with. That, the, that this very God, who sustains all of life, that spoke and worlds were formed, and, and nature it came into being, is the same God that calls us His own. You know, you know man is so caught up on this idea that if he finds life on another planet that it, that he has to find it he's made it sort of his mission to do so and i think god has uh, i don't know if you think about aliens or whatever but i don't know if we'll ever find life on another planet and i think that's exactly the point it's not so that man can get the center of attention it's the opposite <coughs> it's so that god can 
that we are so small and minute and so so infinitesimal in terms of the 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 space and the sort of um, expanse of of the universe, and yet God has chosen those sorts of people to be with and dwell with. And not only that, those sorts of people to die for and save. It's not that man is somehow super, super special, which he is. He is the the king or the crowning jewel of God's creation. But it's also a really important sermon The sermon of space is the fact that how are we so significant that God would choose to dwell with us. David even writes that in Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him? The same God that holds all of those stars and galaxies in their courses as they spin around us. As we know, he knows exactly when the sparrow falls to the ground and when a hair off of your head falls. That's what he says in Matthew 10. That he numbers the hairs of our head and he knows when a sparrow goes hungry. And that same God knows you as well. It's to get your mind. Jesus is being very hyperbolic. Just trying to get your mind to see this is the type of God you have. He controls the galaxies and he numbers the grains of sand. He controls all of space. He's the Lord of it all. He holds it in his hand and he holds you in his hand as well. You personally. He knows you by name. He says, you are mine and we can testify to God. I am yours. Just like David here. The God of all creation sees you. He knows you. He knows exactly your thoughts, your feelings, your frustrations, your circumstances. He sees it. He knows it. He's been there for you. And he's there with you now. And he belongs to you. And you belong to him. I think this is the thing that continues to boggle my mind. That this God of all glory and creation knows me. Not only that. As we are made to see in that beautiful hymn. And can it be. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. The one who dies for us is the same one who, who can speak and make worlds come into existence. This is your God. Never get over that awesome fact. The, the, just the fact of the awesome wonder that this God calls you his own. That the God, it says, of all generations, that holds all of nature in its courses by His ordaining, by His ordinances, calls you His own. We are His possession. We are His precious possession. What a glorious fact. That is your identity. And it doesn't fade. It doesn't go away. But look thirdly. Look at verse 92. And I think here we have our unwavering testimony. Look at what he says. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should, have, I should then have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. And then look at verse 95. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. 
This is David's testimony. It's founded and formed by the fact that he had an unchanging foundation, and yes, an unfading identity, that now he can testify to this, that notwithstanding all of the affliction that comes upon him, that notwithstanding all the antagonism that comes upon him, that waited for him, as he says, that the wicked have waited for me to destroy me, this word was his, and it was written for him, to him, about him. And that's why he could rejoice. He says, I have, uh, that unless the law had been my delights, I should have perished. Apart from this uh, interest, we might continue to say, this interest, this part, this assurance that the word was his, that the God of the word was his, and that this word was his as well, that apart from that, he should have perished. He should have been destroyed. But it's that confidence that comes from knowing that this word is written to us, for us, about us. It's his testimony. It's a testimony of the fact that this God is so interested in our redemption, that glorifying himself in our salvation, that he writes this word to us, to support us and sustain us. As he says there, I will never forget thy precepts, for thou hast quickened me. With them thou hast quickened me. And here I think we can really see uh, that precious truth of Scripture here in these verses. This is that idea that, uh, that we can consider God's testimony. And when we consider God's testimony about himself, why do we have to fear man's threats? He says uh, in verse uh, 95, the wicked have waited to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. What can man do unto me? God is my God. We need not fear what man threatens to do to us. No other source of, of information, no other news can give him this sort of confidence. Apart from the words that God says about himself. As he says, thy testimonies. God's self-revelation of himself to us as the Savior builds our faith. It steadies our faith. Yes, even in troublesome times. Let me read that verse to you real quick. You can write it down. Uh, it's Isaiah 26.3. You're probably familiar with it. But I love what the prophet here says. He says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. That peace comes from knowing that we have an unwavering testimony in this word of God to us. You know, there was a lot of, um, I like this word, there's a lot of hullabaloo going along about this Democrats trying to sort of take away the tax exemptions for religious organizations. Have you heard about that? Um, it's, you don't have to know about it, but it's happening. They're trying to do that now. That's a platform that I think is uh, interesting. But I think... We, if you let yourself dwell on that idea that they're going to try and now you know, govern what we say or whatever. They're going to try and uh, insert themselves into our church and tell us what to do and say. And they're going to try and change us. And I think we can dwell on that. And we can get caught up in that. And we can get very much fretted by that fact. <laughs> but I, I love what a, a conservative pastor, he kind of wrote in response to this story that was going around. He says, they can take away our tax status. They can censor our sermons. They can criminalize our doctrine. They can outlaw our worship. They can burn our buildings. They can throw us in jail. But the gospel of Christ and his church marches on 
unabated. And I love that. Because they can do that to us, but it's not going to change the gospel. They can do that to me that regardless of what happens, our message cannot and will not change. It won't change if they, if they throw preachers like me in jail or like my dad or other friends that I have elsewhere. They, they can throw them into prison for their message. It won't change the message. Just think about what happened uh, several hundred years ago when they were burning martyrs at the stake. Did that work? Did it outlaw the gospel and the point where it became extinct? It did not. It actually made it flourish all the more. That when they, they uh, burned, I, I forget which martyr it was, but they burned him and threw his ashes into a river. And they go back to that very scene and say that his ashes spread over all of Europe and sparked what we would now know as the Reformation. It's that very thing that they can't take away our identity because it's unfading in Christ. They can't take away our foundation because it's unchanging, it's unmovable in the Lord himself. They can't take away your testimony. They can't wait, take away the fact that God calls you His, regardless of what they do to you. And we don't need anything else in this world to tell us that than this word itself that says to us, you are the Lord's. I love what Martin Luther says. Luther, he says this, I have covenanted with my Lord that He should not send me visions or dreams or even angels, I am content with this one gift of the scriptures, which abundantly teaches and supplies all that is necessary, both for this life and that which is to come. This word, as he says, is this abundant teacher that tells him of this unchanging foundation, of this unfading identity, and this unwavering, this constant testimony that he has in this God of the word. We don't need further signs. We don't need further proof. This word is our confidence. Why? Again, it is steadfast. It doesn't change. Its message is the same. It says the message of it is is God's interest in us. That we might be saved. That we might become his sons and daughters. And it reminds me of, uh, I'm almost done. Um, That wonderful scene in Daniel 3. That, remember, uh, the, th- the Hebrew three are confronted with this, with this uh, wager, bow to this idol or be thrown into a furnace. And I think their testimony uh, rings true here, and I think rings true forever. They say, you can throw us in that furnace, but we still will not worship. And more than that, they go on, they say that, that we know that our God can deliver us from this furnace, which, number one, is a crazy truth if you think about it, that we believe that our God is so powerful that He can deliver us from this furnace in which we'll be thrown. But I love what they say in verse 18 of that chapter. They say, but even if He doesn't, even if He doesn't deliver us, even if it means we get burned in that furnace, we will still not worship your gods, Nebuchadnezzar. Even if he doesn't. That's an incredible testimony that only comes from knowing what type of God you have. Knowing what type of God has an interest in you. It's the God of all creation who calls you his own. Who can encourage you to have the confidence to say that even if they don't. 
Even if God doesn't choose to redeem us from this wickedness, redeem us to claim us uh, and take us out of this problem, even if he doesn't, we will still serve him. And why? Because we are his. This is a steadfast testimony of the word. That all of the redeemed of God's are steadfast And they are made to be still in this grace which God gives to us. What a glorious testimony. And it's a testimony that cannot change. Let us pray.